you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2, second chapter of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you that we'd love to give you as a gift. You can just take it with you today if you don't have a Bible at home. Today we're finishing up a three-part mini-series that we're doing within our bigger series, Genesis 1 through 11, that we've been looking at the true story of the whole world. But for the last two weeks, and today we'll finish up, we've been looking at what it means to be a human being. And taking our cues from what our humanity is from the scriptures rather than from another source. We are tempted to look at what's uh, popular, what's current, what is uh, culturally appropriate, and we think that's what it means to be a human being. That's what it means. These are the things that we should be excited about and committed to. Sometimes we look outward. Sometimes we look inward a lot, and we think, well, self-actualization about if I just try to figure out my own self, then I'll know what it means to be a human being. Now, trying to discover who you are and how God's made you is really important, and also understanding which cultural moment we're in is very important. But what we wanted to do is to look at the creation of man and woman and to ask, what is it that the Scriptures tell us it means to be a human being? And so we've looked first at representation, that is, that we are made in the image of God, that we have dignity, we have dominion, we have uh, a charge to fill this earth and to subdue it, and we are God's representatives, His prophets, priests, and kings on this earth, and he has given us that dignity so to represent him. We have representation. Second, last week we looked at rhythms. What it means to be a human being is that we engage in the rhythms of worship and work, rest and recreation, exactly as God intended us to do. And that actually gives us the shape of our humanity. Today, we're ending the series by looking at relationships. Relationship. God made us to be in relationships. So let's read starting in verse 18, and finish out the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a senior in high school, uh, I joined the newly uh, established bowling league at my high school. I went to a big public high school, and um, I remember the day that 
that the voice came crackling over the intercom, uh, you know, that they were starting a league of bowling in, in Mississippi. That's where I grew up. And uh, our high school was going to be participating, and there were tryouts. And so anybody that wanted to try out could. Now, I'd already established my dominion because I was a, the student body president, and I didn't really have anything to prove. I had lots of time on my hands. I was a senior. I had several periods that were gone, you know, that didn't have class in. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Why not? Why not be a bowler for my high school, having no interest in particular with bowling before? So I did it as kind of a joke, as I got a social experiment. It'd be fun to hang out uh, with other people. In fact, it was just a big joke for several of us. We joked about how we, maybe we would order Letterman jackets. Uh, if you're familiar with that tradition, the athletes of the school could walk around, you know, with Letterman jackets with the, the patch, and we thought, wait, you know, because we're, we're going to be athletes, right? And uh, still to this day, I'm listed in the athletic section in our senior yearbook, and that gives me no amount of uh, amusement, no small amount of amusement. So we bowled. I was, you know, serious when, when I did it. You know, I, I tried to, to get all the pins down, but the whole thing was a social experiment, not something I was too serious about. It's just something I did to hang out with other people. But around that time, I find out years later, uh, this is in seminary when I read about this, I didn't know that there was another trend happening. At the same time that I was in high school, Robert Putnam released a book that became famous in a bestseller called Bowling Alone. And in that book, he made the case that civic institutions, the very fabric of our society, the things that we used to draw a lot of meaning from, from being neighbors with one another, from uh, having civic institutions where we had a shared life, that those things were deteriorating. And the thing that he used as an example, the title of the book was, there used to be um, you know, bowling leagues where people would bowl together for fun and for entertainment and for a shared life together. But now, at that time, Around the year 2000, there were more bowlers in America. There were more and more bowlers, but there were fewer and fewer leagues. And so there was more people that were bowling alone. More people had moved more internal. And at the same time, the rate of loneliness and depression were creeping up in America. So while I was bowling for the social aspect, apparently there were many more who were not. Now, it's been 21 years since that book was released. And since then, there's been another trend in the world of loneliness, in the world of being alone. Now we have what has been called being alone together. Sherry Turkle coined that phrase. She's a psychologist who gave a TED Talk a few years ago and also released a book with that title, Alone Together. The subtitle of the book is Why We Expect More, More from Technology and Less from Each Other. And she coined the phrase alone together. And you can picture it because this is our lives. These are our children. This is also us, right? Where we can be together in a room and yet our technology, our screens pull us away from being together. So we're alone while being together. And that is a new, newer trend of a, of a few years. And so, but the whole trend is towards more and more aloneness. As the Gospel Coalition uh, writer said, uh, this, we used to bowl alone, now we just don't bowl at all, which is true. Now the bowlers have decreased, and more and more entertainment is on screens. And in fact, before there was a pandemic, 
of last year, before COVID-19, in the year 2019, there was a slew of articles released in publications that called loneliness the loneliness pandemic. As we see the increase of loneliness by self-reporting in almost every single class of people. There's been an increase in aloneness for a long time in this country. It's changed shape. It's looked different every few years as technology increases, but it continues to be a trend towards loneliness. What does the Bible have to say about being alone like this? Our increased aloneness. I can sum it up for you in two words. Not good. That's what he says in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. This should strike us. Slap us in the face. I've been reading Genesis 1 and 2 so far because here is a change. God has given seven benedictions over His creation. It is good. 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 It is very good. And then... He says, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Loneliness is not good. What does that mean? Because the fall hasn't happened yet. Chapter 3, there hasn't been sin in the world, so loneliness by itself is not sinful, we might say. It's not necessarily sinful. Sometimes we are sinful that leads to loneliness. But it's not sinful in and of itself to be lonely, but it's insufficient for our humanity. It's not good. It's a missing piece to making us fully and finally human. And it makes sense with who God is because God is a singularity and a, a, and a plurality. He is one and three and three and one. We've already seen hints of that throughout these first two chapters. And He made us in His image. And so He made us to be individual people that are together with a shared humanity. And so we want to talk about that today. Um, And many people use this passage to talk about marriage. We are going to talk about marriage uh, primarily, but there are other ways that we are not to be alone. And this is the start not just of marriage, but it is the start of other human institutions. So we want to look at those together. Here's the main point that we want to see. The Bible's relationship design is this. Humans will find satisfaction and purpose in being together. To find the satisfaction and purpose for your humanity, you need the missing element of others. It's very hard to build a life of satisfaction, purpose, and beauty without others. So I want to look at four institutions created here. Four human institutions that contribute to our humanity. First two I'll move through pretty quickly and then we'll spend time on marriage and the church at the end. But the the first one is this. Our humanity. Our shared humanity. What I'm going to do is talk about it from the most broad and general way to the most intimate and tender of human relationships. From the most broad to the most intimate. So first... Humanity. At the most basic level, we are defined satisfaction and purpose in the world because there are people like us. We are in this together. And that is important. Now, it may seem obvious to us. We say, of course, well, 
we're all human beings, and that's important. But there's no hint in this passage that Adam expected to have other human beings with him. It could have been another way. Of course, it couldn't have been in another sense, but from the way that we read it here, the Lord has to kind of shepherd him to this idea of there being other human beings by giving him this parade of animals for him to look at to see that there is no helper fit for him. There's no other person. So he leads him to that place in verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So what God does is He brings this menagerie in front of Adam, and Adam names the animals. And by the way, we don't need to think that He named every species and every subspecies of animals to give it its name. That's not the point of the passage. The whole point is moving towards this idea of Eve coming. And so what God's doing is He's showing him, He's, he's giving him His dominion, he's, he's naming the animals, He's helping him be this skilled naturalist, this person who's supposed to have dominion over creation. He's giving him a task of being the master namer, but what he's really looking for is the one who's fit for him. And it's interesting in Hebrew, the idea of the helper fit for him, that actually just means opposite of. Or corresponding to. You think about puzzle pieces. You get the idea of that word. Fit. Opposite of. They fit together. The same substance. And yet, opposite of each other. Corresponding to. And when Adam sees Eve, the first thing he says is, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He realizes that we're of the same substance. There is someone there that is the same as me. And that's the emphasis of the passage. So before we even get to the idea of marriage, he draws the satisfaction from knowing there's someone like him out there. And we should... As well, we should draw satisfaction from the fact and meaning from the fact that we live in this world with other human beings. An example of that would be, as I've talked to a number of folks who um, have suffered greatly during this last year, have suffered a lot. Maybe somebody has lost a job. Maybe someone has lost a relative. Um, someone who's been very sick or needed to visit someone who's very sick. And I've just had a lot of these conversations. And uh, something that's come up, a theme that has come up through several of the conversations that I've had with people is that I've asked people, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing okay. It's been hard. But then they kind of sheepishly say, you know, it kind of helps that everybody's having a bad year. You know, like I'm suffering, but like everybody's kind of suffering. And I find that kind of oddly comforting. And, um, you know, they almost feel ashamed of that, like there's something really wrong And I like to say to them, that's okay, you know? That's true all the time. We just have lost some of our ability to hide how hard things are, how hard it is to be a human being, how lonely it is sometimes, the, the things that are really hard. We have a shared experience of humanity. It's okay to see that as important to our meaning. At the most basic level, that's true. We have human beings. We're called to see that we are created 
for each other in that bit most broad sense. Moving then to the next most tender relationships we have, our humanity is also seen in our family or our family of origin, to use the psychological term, just to distinguish between the family that we may have with us now. We're born not just as human beings. We're not just to draw meaning and comfort from the fact that we are the same species as other people. We're also born into a family. We have parents. Of course, Adam and Eve did not have parents. They were the first. But Moses, when he writes this, is giving us the principle of family. He does so in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the institution of the family is started here as well. Where we come from. Ideally, and we're speaking of ideals, in a minute we're going to talk about how, the, how our sin and, and brokenness has affected all of this. But just to see what it means to be a human being, ideally is that we were born not just as human beings into the world, but we're born into a family. We're born into a place of love, out of a result of love. And so the nurture of our humanity, what it means to not be alone, means in a more intimate sense that we have a home. We have the nurture of a family. Some of us didn't have that. will talk about that in just a minute. The next institution is that of marriage. It's the next most tender and most intimate relationship. And marriage begins here. Marriage is a place where we can learn to not be alone. It addresses our aloneness in a unique, beautiful, and compelling way. What makes a marriage satisfying and beautiful. We're given principles here at the very start of the institution that's told, that tells us exactly what marriage is and how it satisfies that need for community. A few things I want to mention. First, it's a place of help. It's a place of help. Verse 18 and verse 20 both mention this. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. Marriage is a place of help, physical help, emotional help. We help each other in marriage. There's a kind of efficiency to living with other people that comes with your life with another person that helps you not be alone. Ideally, again, we're speaking only in ideals right now. Helper, we need to see in this passage as a description of Eve, is not a diminishing term as some seem to be worried about. That's really just an insufficiency of the English language to be able to capture what is being said here. It's not a diminishing, like, oh, little helper who does the other person's bidding. That's not what is done here. The, the, it's not, it doesn't mean that. As many have pointed out, this word primarily is used of God in Scripture. God helps His people. He is a very present help in times of trouble, the psalmist says. Same word. He is our helper. And so unless you believe that God is diminished by helping us, then you do not need to believe that Eve is diminished by helping Adam or Adam by helping Eve. Marriage is a place of help. Secondly, marriage is a place of unity. 
And this is where a lot of the satisfaction and beauty of marriage is found. It's that we are one flesh and made of the same substance. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. They come from the same place. There is a unity in marriage. Ideally, there is a unity of body and soul. There is a oneness. There is an us. This is contrary to the popular understanding of marriage that we have around us where marriage is a partnership where two people can pursue their goals, where they give each other help. Marriage is help. We just said that. It's help. But it doesn't just exist for help. It exists for an us, for a unity. Not just two people pursuing their own goals. There's a musical I saw in college um, called The Last Five Years, and it stayed with me. Uh, it stayed with me for a long time. And it's a, it's a play about a husband and a wife and the five years of their marriage before it ends in divorce. And it's a very hard thing to listen to or watch because it involves adultery and it involves divorce. But the artistry of it is in the way that it's told. The story of their five-year marriage is told in different ways. The husband starts from the beginning of the story to the end of the five years. So he goes chronological. But when the woman sings, she sings from the perspective of the end of the marriage and then moves to the beginning. And they actually stay on the stage and they cross paths like this and move to the other side of the stage. And what's interesting in the way that it's told like that is you can see some of the elements coming up of, of how uh, some things have a repeated pattern and yet the perspective is so different. For instance, when the wife sings uh, and she's happy and the relationship is good, she's moved to this side of the stage, she sings words with a smile on her face like, you know, I want you and you and nothing but you. I just want you. But when she sings in the place near their divorce, she uses the same words, but this time her tone and her face are different. And she says, it's all about you and you and nothing but you. It's all about you. And you can see how the parallels can be there when there's not an us. But the most striking thing about the play is that they never sing together except when they get married in the middle of the play, in the middle of the stage. That's the only time they sing together. Each one is singing their own perspective throughout. And in the moment that the ceremony is over, they begin to drift apart and move to the other side of the stage. It's a sad reality for many marriages. It's all about our perspective. Doing our own thing, but the Bible says marriage is a unity. It's an us. A new thing is created. Marriage is also, thirdly, a place of delight. It's a place of delight. The first poem in the Bible is, in the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them, verse 27 of chapter 1. But the second poem, and really the, most, the fullest poem in the Scripture, is what Adam says about Eve in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He speaks poetry when he sees Eve. He delights in her. He says, at last. 
You know, we need to see all the, all the menagerie that's passed before him, right? At last. And yes, you do need to hear Etta James's voice from the 1960s doing her hit and drawing out at last. You know, like, it just, like, wow, Eve is here. It's amazing. He delights in her. He says she shall be called woman. She was made, she was brought from man. Hebrew words there are interesting. He's, man is ish. And Eve is ishah. I think there's some, if you remember your English lesson, lessons, onomatopoeia there, right? It's man plus ah. You know, it's amazing. Ish and isha, they're, they're the same word with just some extra. They're, they're part of one another. There's that unity. There's that delight. Marriage is also beautiful because of the commitment. This is also running contrary to our cultural understanding. People think commitment lessens the fact that we are making a commitment in marriage weakens the emotional experience of marriage, but nothing could be more opposite of the truth. There is a commitment ceremony here. The Lord makes Eve and He brought her to the man. If you're wondering why we have the father of the bride walk down the aisle in a marriage ceremony, its source is here because God brings Eve to the man as a father who gives away his daughter. And there they make the marriage commitment, covenant. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, verse 24, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Leaving and holding fast. Leaving and cleaving, as the old words say. Those are covenantal words. To cleave, it means to hold fast. It means to stick to. It's the same word that's used throughout the Scriptures about a binding covenant. How do you bind a covenant? How do you make something legally bound? You make a covenant and you cleave it. And here, they're making a covenant. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to cleave. It's a commitment to leave. To leave father and mother. That's what makes marriage beautiful is when the family of origin is there's a natural movement out of a nurturing that then is committed to leaving that family. We also see here this makes marriage beautiful is the essential equality and also the roles of marriage. Now, I'm not going to speak a lot about this because this passage doesn't speak a lot about it. But here we see at the beginnings of what the New Testament is going to take, say the beautiful marriage is one where there is equality and also supporting roles. Now we have to be careful of the word equality, right? Because that's used in lots of different ways today. And we should say that equality here does not mean that men and women can, should, will, or might do the same things in marriage. They're not equal in that sense. I am not equal to the task of childbearing. My wife and I are not equal that way. There's not full equality in that sense. That's a bad word to use, but it's also the best word to use. Because here we see the main thrust of this passage is how similar man and woman are and how, how they delight in being the same. The same dignity. The same image of God stamped on. The same good brains and you know, hardworking fingers, the same regal standing, the same dominion over creation. What they are delighting in here is at last we're the same. And that's really important in marriage as we see 
in the unfolding of Scripture, this passage is used to also talk about roles in marriage. In the New Testament specifically, we're told that Jesus and Paul used this as the source of marriage and then make arguments from this passage to tell us about how marriages should be. And one of the roles that we can say just broadly distinguishing is that Paul in particular draws out that man is created first and therefore his headship is assumed in marriage. That's, what, that's the argument he uses. It's not man's brains. It's not man's strength. It's not man's ability or leadership. It is the fact that he was created first in the same way that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And by being first, he is the source or the, head, the headwaters of mankind. So Eve was created from Adam, taken from him, and is from him as a source. We don't have time to go into the details of that today, but just know this. The beautiful marriage is the one that leans into, first and foremost, the essential sameness the, the equality of being in God's image together and that being the central thrust of your marriage, but then not letting that mean that there are not specific roles. A beautiful marriage has both. Lastly, and almost whimsically, we could say there is an openness here. The reason why I say whimsically is because we're about to lose this. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We know that the next chapter is going to show us that they are naked and they are ashamed you're going to lose this openness with one another and openness with God but ideally in marriage that is what makes it beautiful there is a place to be together and open with one another well I've mentioned all those three institutions our humanity our shared humanity our family of origin and marriage all being important for us not being alone from the most general to the most tender but there is something that is more intimate and more tender than marriage is that true can we get less can we get more known more in community than in marriage yes it's a, it's a statement that I say in every single wedding I've ever done at the very beginning as is traditional. Marriage is accepting the covenant of grace the most serious and intimate into which human hearts can enter. Accept for the covenant of grace. Why do I say that? Why is that our understanding? Because the covenant of grace is the covenant that God makes with mankind from the very beginning and that goes throughout the whole rest of the Scriptures of which humanity, of which the family of origin, of which even marriage itself is only the picture. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's like there's a great mystery. Man and woman coming together, but the mystery I'm really excited about is Christ and the church. It's more intimate, more tender, what is that covenant? The covenant is that I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant is that you will be the bride. I will be your bridegroom. You are a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people of God's own possession, and you will not be left alone. We are never alone. Why? What is this institution? 
It's not enough just to say that we have God in a spiritual sense. Adam had that, right? Adam already had a relationship with God, and God still says, it's not good for you to be alone. It's not enough for just us to be with me and God. So what is the bridging factor? What, how do we redeem humanity and have an intimate and tender relationship? It's in Christ taking on flesh and redeeming our humanity and bringing us the most intimate and tender relationship that we can possibly have, that we will not ever be alone, both in the sense of vertical or horizontal, because Christ has taken on this flesh. What he does is he ensures that everything that we need to be to avoid being alone, the things that can happen in a family of origin that are good and special, the things that can happen in a marriage when it's ideal, the unity, the commitment, the openness, the delight, all of those things that may or may not exist in that marriage or in that home of origin can exist with Him. He redeems that humanity. All other levels of human interaction can and will fail you. Humanity will let you down. As we have seen, we are capable of indifference, capable of atrocities as human beings, capable of all kinds of nastiness online, capable of hating one another. As human beings go, this is not a solid place to rest your purpose and meaning and beauty for life in the, in the institution of humanity. Your family of origin, well, many of you don't have to let me know that that can let you down. There can be hurt. There can be absence. There can be abuse. There can be unkindness. There can be confusion from the families where we come. Marriage can let you down. What if you don't marry? Will you be okay? Will there be a sense in which you're lacking being a human being because man was not made to be alone? Even if you are married, what if your marriage is thin? What if it's filled with tragedy? What if it's filled with sickness? What if it's filled with bitterness and fighting? As it can and often does involve if all of these things let you down, are you still a human being? Can you still fulfill this? Yes, you can. Because even if all three of those things are bad in your experience, and if they're good, praise the Lord. But if, if they're all bad, the most tender and intimate community is still available to you. It's found in Christ. He doesn't let you down. He has been sent by God to be our husband. We are the bride of Christ. And so all the heart longings that you have for, for what things that should exist in your marriage, the unity, the commitment, the never letting me down, the openness, being naked and unashamed, those desires that you have are found in Christ. More than that, He is our brother. We've been brought into the family of God. No matter what the family of origin is, you've been brought into the family of God. And so Christ is your brother. 
He's also, the Scripture tells us, your friend. You can bring anything to Him. When you have a life with Christ, you're never left alone. In a secondary sense, He's also made us members of one another, as Paul says. The church is not just the individuals who are united with Christ. It is the ones who have been called out into a family together. As we say on our website, and I hope is true, this church is a home in the heart of the city. From every nation, tribe, and tongue, every socioeconomic group, it doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is one family. And so if you are struggling with your aloneness for whatever reason, maybe it's a family reason, maybe it's a marriage reason, maybe it's just a humanity in general reason, I think this year we've all experienced that. You think, I'm alone. Where you find that community, where you find that answer to your aloneness is most intimately and tenderly found in Christ. Giving Him your life first and foremost, bringing Him your troubles, casting your cares on Him because He cares for you more than anyone else does. And then, as much as you can, uniting yourself to the church, seeing this family, the people in this room, or wherever it is that you may worship on a regular basis, as your family. Not perfectly, not well, but here's where Christ is known. Here's where we can be the family that we cannot or, or situationally do not have. This is the most tender. Anyone can have this. It doesn't matter where you're born or whether you're married or not or anything else. You don't have to be alone. This relationship is here for you this morning. You do not need to be alone. Let's pray. We thank you that you are close to us, God. That even though there's an insufficiency in almost every aspect of our lives, as we just think about it, Father, our homes, our jobs, our marriages, they are insufficient to the task of making us feel at home making us feel welcomed, making us feel delighted and making us feel safe. I pray, Father, that today what we would find is a true friend, a true brother, a true husband, our maker, defender, Lord and friend, as we've sung earlier. You can be that for us. I pray that we would cast ourselves onto your mercy. That we would find ourselves in your family, that we would know that we are delighted in, that we would feel your love for us, and you would push away the shadows of loneliness that increasingly seem to take hold of our culture and of our individual lives, Father. Would you bring your love to bear on us so that we don't feel alone? In Jesus' name, amen.
like the lily white declare their maker's praise this is the Lord's why should my heart be sad the Lord is king let the heavens ring God reigns let earth be glad This is my Father's world, forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one It's my Father's world The battle is not done Jesus who died will be satisfied and and heaven be one God didn't make us to be alone. And what's, what's really amazing when you think about the story of the Scripture is the lengths to which God went to bring us into His family. That aloneness was initially satisfied by having two people, but when sin took away that sense of security and that sense of openness and that sense of delight and all the things that we need... He secured us as part of His family and making us the bride of Christ by making us as brothers and sisters, by uniting us to Christ. And what He did, the lengths to which He went to secure that was the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. By His blood being poured out, His body being broken, He secured this way for us to be in His family so that we can never have to be alone again. So when we come to the table this morning, like we do every week, we're coming knowing, confident that we're part of God's family. And the reason why we are is because Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for us. And so if you have trusted in him, you believe in that covenant of grace that we talked about, that God's commitment to us in Jesus Christ, you're not trusting in anything else, recognizing that Humanity is a thin place to put your hope and that your family may have been really terrible in some obvious or not so obvious ways and that your marriage may not be exactly where it needs to be. Despite those things that you are now most fundamentally a part of God's family, if that is your confession, then we want to invite you to a meal today to taste and see that he is good, to remind your heart of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. If that's not yet 